When I heard others talk of what was the sin against the Holy Ghost, then would the tempter so provoke me to desire to sin that sin that I was, if I could not, must not, neither should be quiet until I had committed it. If it were to be committed by speaking, then I have been as if my mouth would have spoken that word. And in so strong a measure was this temptation upon me that often I had been ready to clap my hand under my chin to hold my mouth from opening. And to that end also I've had thoughts at other times to leap with my head downright into some muckhill hole or other to keep my mouth from speaking. The tempter came upon me again, and that with a more grievous and dreadful temptation than before. And that was to sell and part with this most blessed Christ to exchange him for the things of this life, for anything. The temptation lay upon me for the space of a year and did follow me so continually that I was not rid of it one day in a month, no, not sometimes one hour and many days together. I could neither eat my food, stoop for a pen, chop a stick, or cast my eye to look on this or on that, but still the temptation would come, sell Christ for this or sell Christ for that, sell him, sell him. Sometimes it would run in my thoughts not so little as a hundred times together. Sell him, sell him, sell him. But to be brief, one morning as I did lie in my bed, I was at other times most fiercely assaulted with this temptation to sell and part with Christ. The wicked suggestion still running in my mind, sell him, sell him, sell him, sell him, sell him, as fast as a man could speak. Against which also in my mind, as at other times, I answered, no, no, not for thousands, 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 at least 20 times together. But at last, after much striving, even until I was almost out of breath, I felt this thought pass through my heart. Let him go, if he will. And I thought also that I felt my heart freely consent there too. Oh, the diligence of Satan. Oh, the desperateness of man's heart. Now was the battle won, and down fell I as a bird that is shot from the top of a tree into great guilt and fearful despair. Thus getting out of my bed, I went moping into the field, but God knows with as heavy a heart as mortal man I think could bear. Where for the space of two hours, I was like a man bereft of life, and as now past all recovery, and bound over to eternal punishment." Now was I as one bound, I felt myself shut up into the judgment to come. Nothing now for two years together would abide with me but damnation, and an expectation of damnation. I feared, therefore, that this wicked sin of mine might be that sin unpardonable, of which he speaks but he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. What, thought I, is there but one sin that is unpardonable, but one sin that lays the soul without the reach of God's mercy? Must I be guilty of that? Must it needs be that? Is there but one sin among so many millions of sins for which there is no forgiveness? And must I commit this? Oh, unhappy sin. Oh, unhappy man. Oh, none knows the terrors of those days but myself. I began to compare my sin with the sin of Judas, that if possible, I might find that mine differed from that which is in truth unpardonable. And oh, thought I, if it should differ from it, though but the breadth of a hair, what a happy condition my soul is in. I found it hard work now to pray to God because despair was swallowing me up. I thought I was as with a tempest driven away from God. For always when I cried to God for mercy, this would come in. It's too late. 
I'm lost. God has let me fall, not to my correction, but condemnation. My sin is unpardonable. Those were the words of the man who wrote the best-selling book in the history of the world next to the Bible. What book would that be? Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, from his spiritual autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And they described the struggle of his soul before he became a Christian. And there are still many people who, like Bunyan, fear that before they are converted, they have committed the unforgivable sin. But 24 years of pastoral experience, as well as um, two decades now of seminary uh, professorship, have taught me that far and away more people struggle with whether they have come to the unforgivable sin after they come to Christ than before. What is the unforgivable sin? Can it be committed by a Christian? And I find this is something that young people especially will, uh, will struggle with. And it is a... Um, it's not just some esoteric issue. I, I have before me, uh, this now is a, from back in 07, but <clears throat> uh, from Newsweek magazine, something that I'd heard about and uh, seen a lot of things on here is in print about a website to which people will go and uh, uh, record themselves intentionally committing the unforgivable sin, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, daring God uh, to do anything and basically denying the existence of God and doing so by means of intentionally committing the unforgivable sin. Well, so what is it? And can it be committed by a Christian? Well, there are two passages which refer to this, and they're Matthew chapter 12 and Mark chapter 3. And uh, uh, Christopher is going to come back in a few minutes with a handout that will save you, I think, a, a lot of note-taking, or at least help you with a lot of note-taking, especially with specifics. Matthew 12, 22 to 32, and Mark 3, 22 to 30. They're uh, different accounts of the same event where a demon-possessed man is brought to Jesus. Jesus casts the demon out of the man. And the people who saw it were amazed and began to wonder aloud if Jesus could be the Messiah. But when the Pharisees heard it, says Matthew 12, 24, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And part of the response of Jesus in verses 31 and 32 is, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So let's begin, and this is perfect time for the outline to show up here, with what the unforgivable sin is not. Okay? What the unforgivable sin, thank you, is not. And I'm going to give you five things that it is not, first of all. The unforgivable sin is not, first of all, a specific sin named elsewhere in Scripture. The unforgivable sin is not murder, for murder is the sin of murder. It's not adultery, for adultery is a sin of adultery. 
And we know the unforgivable sin is not murder or adultery. Why? Biblically. Well, King David committed both, and he was forgiven following his repentance for these sins. Murder is murder, adultery is adultery, greed is greed, unbelief is unbelief, and the unforgivable sin is the unforgivable sin. In other words, if you can think of a sin that has a name, then that sin is not the unforgivable sin. It's the sin that has the name you're thinking of. If you're thinking of the sin of murder, well, that's the sin of murder. And that's different from the unforgivable sin. Second, the unforgivable sin is not even denying Christ or blasphemy against Christ. Peter was forgiven for denying Christ specifically and at the worst possible time. Paul mentions in 1 Timothy 1.13 that he was forgiven blasphemy. So in a broad sense, you know, any, any thought or word against God and his word is blasphemy. So every Christian has been forgiven of blasphemy. Third, the unforgivable sin is not merely persistent unre, uh, unbelief. It's not persistent unbelief. Now, it's true those who commit the unforgivable sin do have persistent unbelief, but... Lifelong unbelief is not by itself the unforgivable sin. Now, those who refuse to believe in Jesus all the way to the judgment will not be forgiven. But that is the sin of unbelief. And every Christian is forgiven the sin of unbelief once they do believe. There were many in Jesus' day who persisted in their unbelief but he didn't charge them all with the unforgivable sin. Only the Pharisees in this instance were charged with committing the unforgivable sin. And we'll see several times here, there are three groups in this scene. You have the disciples of Jesus, and you have the Pharisees, and you have the crowd. And in that crowd would have been some believers, some unbelievers. But none of those unbelievers were charged with committing the unforgivable sin. Only some of the unbelievers in the crowd, namely in this case, the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees were charged with the unforgivable sin. So some of those in the crowd who were lifelong unbelievers and would be all the way to their death and who are in hell today did not commit the unforgivable sin. Their lifelong unbelief led them to the same place as those people who commit the unforgivable sin. But there's a difference in lifelong unbelief and the unforgivable sin. So those who commit the unforgivable sin also have lifelong unbelief, but not all who have lifelong unbelief commit the unforgivable sin. Fourth, the unforgivable sin is not saying things flippantly about the Holy Spirit. I have a friend who's now with the Lord who told me about an event that happened on a, on a youth outing uh, one time uh, they were the youth group was in a bus and they were going to somewhere and he was in the back of the bus and he told a joke and the punchline had something to do with the Holy Spirit and he said the bus driver wrenched the bus off the road and jammed it in into park and pulled a brake and ran back into the back of the bus and put his finger right in his face and said don't you ever say anything like that again you may have just committed the unforgivable sin well he said he never forgot that moment as you can imagine, 
Perhaps you haven't gone to that extreme. Maybe you have. Many Christians have made, you know, teasing comments or humorous comments where the name of the Holy Spirit perhaps were used. Or maybe you joked when someone, you know, uh, said or did something and you joked about them really having this, the Spirit or something like that. Uh, uh, or maybe you've joked seeing on television some uh, charlatans in a healing service or something perhaps and you've made some comments or you laughed when someone else made such a comment where uh, there's something humorous related to the Holy Spirit involved with that. The point is it's very easy to say something at least to some degree flippant or irreverent about the Holy Spirit. But even when this is done sinfully, that doesn't mean it's the unforgivable sin. <clears throat> and fifth, the unforgivable sin is not every known willful sin against the Spirit. 1 John 1.8 says that Christians, if Christians say they have no sin, they're deceiving themselves. And we know that, and we know that much of the time when we sin, we knowingly choose to sin. We know we shouldn't say what we're about to say, but we want to say it anyway, and we choose to say it and sin. We know we shouldn't continue thinking uh, about something uh, or in a certain way, and we choose to continue doing so. And that is a known willful sin against the conviction or illumination of the Holy Spirit. Christians are, are warned not to grieve the Spirit, not to quench the Holy Spirit. And so Christians can do that. Christians can grieve the Spirit. They can quench the Spirit. And surely, some of the time when that happens, Christians know they are doing so. They are making choices that they know are willfully sinning against the Holy Spirit's conviction or illumination. Jesus said that any sin in blasphemy, even if against the Son of Man shall be forgiven, provided there is repentance. So kind of summarize that, Paul warns, don't grieve the Spirit, don't quench the Spirit. Who does he say that to? To Christians. So apparently Christians can do that, and some of the time, surely it's, it's known. But they're still Christians. And Jesus would say, any sin and blasphemy, even if against himself, against Jesus, shall be forgiven, provided there is repentance. So these are things the Holy Spirit, uh, the sin against the Holy Spirit is not. The unforgivable sin is not those things. So now let's talk about what it is. Jesus said the unforgivable sin is blasphemy against or to speak against the Holy Spirit. That's Matthew 12, 31 and 32. And he said this of the Pharisees. Because they were saying, this is Mark 3, 30, because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So what is it? Seven things, and the most important is this first one. The unforgivable sin is denial of the truth about Christ. Or if we just stopped right there, that's very much like persistent unbelief. That's very common. People who know the truth about Christ. But it is denial of the truth about Christ despite enlightenment by the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to argue that that is rather rare. That that's the qualifier that makes this a unique sin. It's denial of the truth about Christ, knowingly rejecting Christ, despite something that most unbelievers do not have. And that is enlightenment by 
the Holy Spirit. So take your Bible and go to Hebrews chapter 6 now. We're going to try to explain one difficult passage by another. Hebrews 6 verses 4 through 8, which you can put in the margin of your Bible. They're close, but no salvation. Hebrews 6 verses 4 to 8. And we're going to see why this is a classic passage used by those who believe a person can lose their salvation, but why it does not, in fact, teach that. Hebrews 6.4, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and there's our key word right now, those who have once been enlightened, I'm going to argue that most unbelievers aren't enlightened. In the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground, and now he's using an analogy, and a ground here is a person. For ground that drinks the rain, that's like the work of the Holy Spirit, which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation or fruit useful to those whose sake, for whose sake it's also tilled, receives a blessing from God. In other words, the person who receives the work of the Holy Spirit and brings forth fruit is blessed from God. That's, that's the Christian. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless, close to being cursed, and ends up being burned. And I think it's reasonable to believe this is exactly what happened to the people in, uh, who were charged with committing the unforgivable sin, what is spoken of here in Hebrews 6. They were not saved, but the people in Hebrews 6 were about as close as you can come to salvation without being saved. People had once been enlightened, and that's not the kind of language normally used to speak of unbelievers. I think it's speaking of people who have committed the unforgivable sin, and it's analogous to what Jesus said to those Pharisees. The Holy Spirit had enlightened these people to know who Christ was. Notice what it says about them. I don't think it means they had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but rather it says they have tasted of the heavenly gift and made partakers of of the Holy Spirit in the sense that the Holy Spirit had enlightened them to know who Jesus is, to understand the gospel, to know who Christ really is. And it says they've tasted of the heavenly gift, partakers of the Holy Spirit, in that they were not only had been enlightened, but they had been in the room when the Spirit of God had been at work. That's what it means, I think, when it says they have, they have tasted the good word of God. They've heard the word of God proclaimed they, and the powers of the age to come. Perhaps they'd been in the room when people had been healed or miracles had taken place. But, but the work of the Holy Spirit was evident. The love manifested between believers. Uh, various marks of the Holy Spirit that had gone on in their sight. They weren't strangers to these things. So they had been enlightened by the Holy Spirit to really understand the gospel and who Jesus is, what they needed to do to repent and believe that Jesus was the only way to salvation, that he would save them if they would come to him. 
and they had seen outwardly the work of the Spirit of God, been present in the room when the Spirit of power powerfully at work, and then, despite all that they had seen, all they had heard, all they had experienced, tasting all they had tasted. And by the way, we'd like to be able to say, well, they just sort of tasted the Holy Spirit, so to speak, and it didn't really, you know, if we can follow the analogy there, swallow the Holy Spirit, you know, just didn't receive into themselves the Holy Spirit. But that, that we can't do that because the same tasted kind of language speaks of believers in other places. So we can't use that taste versus, you know, receiving the Holy Spirit language. But despite all they've tasted, all they've experienced, they had ultimately rejected Christ and chosen their sin instead. And I think that's a description of the unforgivable sin. Now, visually, to present this to you, uh, you can flip over to the back side of that and... We're going to look at something called ordo salutis. It's a Latin word, a term to speak of the order of salvation. <clears throat> what ordo salutis attempts to do is take the terms, uh, mostly biblical terms, sometimes theological terms, um, that have to do with some aspect of salvation. And I think you'd be surprised how many there are and, if, and in fact, there are a number of them that are in the Bible we, that aren't even dealt with on the page. Words like redemption, reconciliation, biblical words that have to do with some aspect of salvation, they're not even on the page, and look how many are. So uh, all of these are Bible words that have to do with some aspect of salvation. And when theologians try to kind of line these up, especially in, in some sort of logical order, it's called ordo salutis. And I'll show you where the, the main controversy is on this uh, in just a moment. So, that's what Ordo Salutis is. And it begins in eternity past with biblical words like foreknowledge, predestination, and election. I call your attention, these are Bible words. These are not theologians, uh, words that theologians dreamed up. These are Bible words, and so uh, if you believe the Bible, you, you have to believe something about these things. I remember even when I was in seminary, some of these words I used to think, well, election, that, that's true or false. And one of the first things when I began to study it, the realization came upon me, election is true because the Bible says so. <laughs> you have to, if you believe the Bible, you have to believe election is true. Now, what does the Bible teach about it? Well, it is the truth about election, but these, these things are true. They are Bible words, but they occur in eternity, were done by the Lord in eternity past. Then on the other end is eternity future. And the big word there is glorification. Made like Christ forever and ever. Not like Christ in his divinity like the Mormons believe. We're not going to be little gods. Rather we'll be made like Jesus in his sinless perfect humanity reflecting the glory of God sinlessly forever and ever. And that is going to be, you know, when we see the Lord, 1 John 3, 2 and 3, we shall be like him for we shall be as he is. Then... For the believer, there's this point of salvation, which we could add a number of words there. Uh, but the words that apply at this point are words like regeneration, which the, it's we're born again. That's what that means. But the biblical term regeneration, made alive. Uh, repentance and faith occur then. Justification, declared righteous, uh, credited with the life of Christ. And um, the, where theologians differ is at this point. 
Uh, the question uh, arises, uh, which comes first, regeneration, are you born again, or do you uh, repent and believe? And if you do a, a, a survey among uh, most evangelicals and among uh, most Southern Baptists, which I'm a part of, they would say, well, uh, repentance and faith comes first. You're not going to be born again until you repent and believe. But in fact, our doctrinal statement, and uh, what I'm told from Christopher, the doctrinal statement of this church would hold that uh, what I believe the Bible actually teaches, that regeneration precedes repentance and faith. You're made alive spiritually before you can do the spiritual act of repentance and faith. In other words, it's like when Jesus came to the tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus was dead physically, just as Ephesians 2 says, we are dead in trespasses and sins. And when he made Lazarus alive, the first thing he wanted to do freely, willingly, was to come to Christ. And in the same way, when a person is born again, when they are regenerated, the very first thing you want to do, not compelled by any external force, you freely want to come to Christ in repentance and faith. So people say, well, how much time is in between there? The Bible doesn't use temporal language here. This is not a temporal priority in terms of how much time is there. Is there a second between here? Is there half a second, a millisecond? It doesn't say. But there is a logical priority. In other words, one of these has to come first. And we would say that they're virtually synonymous, uh, simultaneous, but logically you have to be made alive before you can do the spiritual acts of repentance and faith. But for purposes of information, history, and theology, that's where the crux of the issue is. When theologians differ in debate, it, it's over the order of those things there. But it is clear it's when Romans 10, 9, 10, when we confess and believe we are justified, we're declared righteous. All right. Next has to do with after salvation until the point we are glorified. And the operative word there is sanctification, made more like Christ, made holy, made growing in Christ-likeness until the day when that's fully completed when we see the Lord. But now we're getting to the point of, of our, our text and the message here. We're going to talk about the various stages that people go through from being lost until the point of salvation, or as we'll see with the un unforgivable sin, almost salvation. <clears throat> now these stages, again, uh, it's all these can happen in a moment of time, in one presentation of the gospel. For a lot of people, their experience is it, it's spread out over a longer period of time, but the Bible doesn't give us any particular uh, time frame again here. So it starts with those who are just unconcerned about the things of God. They have no interest in the things of God, no interest in the gospel. But then people, by the work of the Holy Spirit, are awakened. They wake up someday and say, you know what, I'm going to die someday. The, the things of, of, of God become a matter of interest. Uh, many of you won't remember this, but right after 9-11 happened, for a couple of weeks there was a bump in church attendance nationwide as people saw these horrific images of thousands of people dying in a moment, you know, right before their eyes, and they began to realize, what's going to happen to me when I die? And it sobered people. A lot of people were awakened to eternal realities, and they came to church for a while. But most of them quit doing that, as happens in most cases, and they turned back to being unconcerned. 
But Spurgeon said at one point that everyone has a religious spasm every once in a while. And so the people who briefly get interested in maybe they, they see a movie, they have a tragedy in their life, someone they love dies, something causes them for a short period of time to be interested in the Bible, to be interested in the things of God or of eternity. But then that wears off and they go back to real life. But some people are brought farther along and they are convicted. The Holy Spirit causes them to see you know, not just I should pay attention to eternal things, but they begin to realize that they have sinned against God. There is a God. There is a judgment. They have broken the law of God, and they are in trouble. And sometimes we see this in church where people will be greatly troubled, and they're not just awakened. It's deeper than that. And they're seriously concerned about their condition, but after a while for most people, this wears off, and they go back to being unconcerned again. But then a smaller number are brought closer, those who are enlightened. This happens to those who eventually are saved, who are brought to the point of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. It also happens to those who commit the unforgivable sin. They are brought as close as possible. They understand the gospel. They know that Christ would save them if they would repent and believe. They don't need any more information. They know their condition. They know what they should do. And unless the Holy Spirit regenerates them, they will turn back. And that point of turning back, I believe is the point where people commit the unforgivable sin. And the reason why Hebrews says in Hebrews 10.26, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Like these Pharisees, there, there's nothing else you can show them. The Spirit of God has revealed to them, has illuminated them, has enlightened them, with everything they need to know. They're not lacking any piece of the puzzle. They know they need their sins forgiven. They know Christ has the power to forgive them. They know what they need to do. And they can be brought that close to salvation. But unless the Spirit of God brings them to regeneration, as Jesus put it, people love darkness rather than light. And they will turn back to the darkness unless God changes their heart. It's not just a matter of information. There must be a changed heart. The heart of stone, as God said in Ezekiel, must be made a heart of flesh, must be implanted by God. You know, the, the scary thing of this is it shows how close a person can come to salvation. And you can be raised in the church. And you can live a life where you never consciously reject anything. You, you don't turn your back on anything you're taught. You believe the stories of the Bible. You believe the Bible is the Word of God. You believe Jesus rose from the dead. You don't doubt any of the facts that your parents or your pastor or your teachers taught you. But that alone, agreeing that the Bible is true, is not saving faith. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit... 
despite all of that, we will all turn back into darkness rather than light. So it's a, it's a very sobering thing, but that point, I believe, is what Hebrews 6 is talking about. And, and another difference between the, the few people that come this far who are not brought into salvation is this. The people who drive by churches on Sunday morning, People who come to Fredericksburg, you know, antiquing and so forth, and they, they may, I don't know where the traffic patterns are. I know this is kind of a side road, but let's say that they can see your church from somewhere and driving by, and they look and see the cars in the parking lot, and they drive by on their way to antiquing and so forth, and they think, those fools. And they think they've got us all figured out, right? They think they know what the church is all about. They think they know the message we preach that it's basically, you know, a moralistic life based upon a belief in God and so forth. And, and they think they know all about the church. And they think they know all about the message that we preach. When in fact they don't. And my experience is in most places I've been, ask people just a paragraph to write down what is the gospel. <laughs> they can't do that. And these are in our best churches, much less the people who just drive by. That's, that's not these people. That's, that's, not, that's not these folks. They really do know. See, these Pharisees had prayed for the Messiah. They had studied the Scriptures. They knew what the, the Old Testament said about the Messiah. And they prayed every day for the Messiah. But then, when it was revealed to them, he was standing right in front of them. And they knew they needed to bow the knee and to place their faith in him. They looked at this unclean, unformally educated peasant who didn't have their education, who didn't have their refinements and their, their finery, and they could not bring themselves, even though they knew who he was, they could not give up their place. They could not give up all the, the greetings in the marketplaces and all these things that Jesus warned about, and they could not bow the knee, not to this man. Not to this man. That's the unforgivable sin. You know what you're doing. You know who Jesus is. You know what you need to do. And you will not. And that's the unforgivable sin. Most people who reject Christ don't understand the gospel. They think they do, but they don't. But by the Holy Spirit, these people do. And yet you can be brought that close by the Holy Spirit to salvation. But even then, our hearts are so darkened and we love darkness rather than light. Unless He makes us alive, we will still turn back and choose darkness rather than light. So, that's the difference between blasphemy, which basically everybody does in one way or another, before and after they're saved, and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The difference is, let me give you the illustration, in another Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus. 
In 1 Timothy 1.12, he says he was a blasphemer. But notice the difference. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy. Because, why, Saul of Tarsus, if you were a blasphemer, why were you shown mercy and these Pharisees weren't? He says, because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. The Pharisees that Jesus pointed out here acted knowingly in unbelief. You see the difference? Saul of Tarsus thought he knew what he was doing when he was persecuting Christians. He thought he was doing the will of God, but he said, I didn't know what I was doing. I acted ignorantly in unbelief. But the Pharisee, not all the Pharisees, remember, Joseph, Arimathea, there were two or three that were converted, Nicodemus. But the ones speaking here in Matthew 12, Jesus said they acted knowingly in their unbelief. So the first thing about the unforgivable sin is that it is denial of the truth about Christ despite enlightenment by the Holy Spirit. Now quickly through these others. Second, it is gradual. It's gradual. Notice the Pharisees' progress in sin by these three passages in Matthew. Matthew 9, 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax gatherers and sinners? So they began by questioning what Jesus did in Matthew 9, 11. But notice the progress in Matthew 12, 2. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Behold, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. So they moved from questioning and wondering to criticizing and accusing Jesus for what he did. And then in Matthew 12, 14, but the Pharisees went out and counseled together against him as to how they might destroy him. So finally, they came to the place where they hated him so much they wanted to kill him. It went from questioning to criticizing to wanting to kill him. So you don't suddenly and unexpectedly commit the unforgivable sin. You don't hit your thumb with a hammer and say something and then later look at yourself in horror. What did I just say? Oh my goodness, I hope I didn't commit the unforgivable sin. You don't commit the unforgivable sin and then look at yourself in surprise and horror in the mirror that you've done it. There seems to be a hardening over time of the heart and of the attitude toward Jesus that builds toward this sin. Third, the unforgivable sin is verbal. It is verbal. Matthew 12, 24 and also Mark 3.30, it says, because they were saying, Jesus said this to them, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. In both accounts of this event, it's because of something they said. Matthew 12.24, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons, but even more clear, <coughs> Excuse me, Mark 3, 29. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. He's guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So the unforgivable sin is not just an attitude, though it begins there. It manifests itself through the mouth. Fourth, it is intentional. It's not just words, nor is it accidental. It is deliberate. It is willful. Matthew 12, 25 which I'll give you great insight here. That's right after verse 24. 
in verse 24, where they accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan, in verse 25 it says, and knowing their thoughts. He said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, any city whose house or the house divided against itself shall not stand. In other words, he knew their thoughts and he knew what they said wasn't a sudden, unintentional blurting out of words they really didn't mean. He knew their thoughts and he knew they meant what they said when, he sa when they said, you did this by the power of Satan. So once again, you don't hit your thumb with a hammer and blurt out something and later think, oh, I didn't mean to say that. I don't really believe that. Have I committed the unforgivable sin? No, you mean it. You say it and you mean it before and after. And furthermore, it's habitual. Fifth, it's habitual. Jesus said that their sins, their words, I mean, reveal their true character. So in the very next words, following his statement that says, whoever sins against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth which you speaks, and you just spoke, your mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. What filled their heart was the unforgivable sin. Jesus knew it wasn't a one-time blurting out. It wasn't a one-time attitude. They, it wasn't just because he had just showed them up in some way and they were humiliated and said something that later they regretted. He knew they really meant it and they meant it all the time. This was the attitude that filled their hearts. So, once again, you don't commit the unforgivable sin and then regret it. You don't commit the unforgivable sin and, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. I didn't really mean it. I just hit my thumb with that hammer and I'd said something. Or, or someone that I really loved and prayed for died and I was so mad at God for letting that happen. Or this happened, that relationship ended, or something happened and I was so hurt. I was so angry with God for letting that happen. And I cursed God in my bedroom. And now I wish I hadn't done that. It was just the way I felt at the moment. No, if you commit the unforgivable sin, it's habitual. It's not a one-time thing. It's not because God disappointed you and, and you blurted out something that later you regret because that brings us to the next one. It is unremorseful. It is unremorseful. They defied Jesus to the end. They helped to plan his death. As John eleven forty seven. 53 talks about it. In other words, they never regretted what they said or what they did. They never had remorse about it. In John eleven forty seven, they admit he's still doing the same miraculous kinds of things. It says, therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? But this man is performing many signs. They looked around and said, what? What's going on here? I mean, this guy is, is raising the dead. He is causing people who have congenital blindness to see. We're, we're seeing limbs grow. What are we doing? This man's performing many signs. What's the result? Verse 53. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. They didn't say, you know, we don't like this guy. He is embarrassing us. He's showing us up. It's going to mean a complete change. We're going to, instead of being the top dog, we're going to be submissive to him if we, if we submit to him. But, you know, let's be realistic. He's raising people from the dead. 
He's growing limbs. He's giving sight to the blind. Maybe we are wrong. That would be the logical conclusion, right? We don't like everything about this. We don't like everything about him. But we can't argue with the facts staring us in the face. This man, Lazarus, was in the tomb three days and there he is. We've seen this man all of our lives begging and he's this blind man and now he can see. For 40 years. He was blind, now he can see. We have seen people grow limbs. Maybe, just maybe, he is of God. And we're making a mistake. No, when they thought through that, they said, we want to kill him anyway. Because they were knowing exactly what they were doing. So if you ever say things to or about God that you fear may have made you guilty of the unpardonable sin, but you regret saying those things, or you regret what you did, you have not committed the unforgivable sin. And then last, it is unpardonable forever. Look at verse 32. And whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now some people read the words there, it won't be forgiven, or in the age to come, and think that it hints at the possibility of the forgiveness of sins after death. In other words, there are some sins he won't be forgiven now, but in the age to come he'll have a chance. No, Jesus says here that he won't be forgiven now, and he won't be forgiven in the age to come. Well, he's not hinting at the possibility of a second chance of forgiveness after death. He's explicitly denying it. He means there is never forgiveness for this sin. Now or at the judgment. So having said all of that, two major views of the unforgivable sin. One major view is that it is calling Christ demonic and his miracles satanic. And it relies heavily on Mark 3 and verse 30, which says the Pharisees were guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And there are those who say, you have to say something like that. You have to say something like that. And in fact, many of them would say, you, you had to be there. and say that. But the other view, and the one I'm, I'm advocating, says that it's something broader. It, it's the persistent rejection of Christ despite knowing the truth about him through the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. But even without some sense of finality and precision, we can answer the most important question, and that is, have I committed the unpardonable sin? So let me wrap it up with these five quick things here. First of all, it is possible still. It is possible still to commit the unforgivable sin. Because there are those, and perhaps the leading advocate, he's still alive, I think, is in this state, in Dallas, who believes that the only time you could commit the unforgivable sin is when Jesus was alive. You had to be in the presence of Jesus. You had to see his miracles and call them satanic. But not only do I see nothing in Scripture which says that the unforgivable sin can't be committed anymore, I think Hebrews 6 describes it. But anyone who wants to relax in the hope that the unforgivable sin can't be committed and then think it's safe to delay repentance and faith in Christ is in danger of going just by a different way to the same place as those who commit the unforgivable sin. You keep rejecting Christ, you 
may end up just like these Pharisees. Second, it is impossible for spirit-indwelled people to commit the unforgivable sin. It is impossible for spirit-indwelled people to commit the unforgivable sin. I use that term spirit-indwelled people to make a point rather than just saying Christians. Because those who are already indwelled by the Holy Spirit cannot begin to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, the Bible says that those who have the Holy Spirit have already been forgiven of how many of their sins? All their sins, right? The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If you were cleansed of all sin, after that you can't be guilty of the unforgivable sin. Otherwise, 1 John 1, 9 wouldn't be true. We're also taught in Colossians 2.13, And when you were dead in your transgressions, the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. If you've been forgiven all your transgressions, then you can't become guilty of an unforgivable. But you may say, but, but you don't understand. Sometimes I have the most blasphemous thoughts. I think thoughts I would never admit to any other person in the world, but God knows. And I just, I don't know where this comes from, but I have the, the most wicked thoughts. Yes, I know I have them too. But do you delight in them? Or are you repulsed by them? Do you grieve over them? Do you hate the fact that you sometimes think of them? That's the difference. Do you wish you had never thought them? Then you haven't committed the unforgivable sin. Because you can't be indwelled by the Spirit and blaspheme the Spirit. Third, perhaps most importantly, it is impossible that you have committed the unforgivable sin if you are concerned that you have committed it. It is impossible... You have committed the unforgivable sin if you are concerned that you have committed it. And this is the bottom line for most people. See, the Pharisees didn't care whether they'd committed this sin or not. Jesus pointed his finger right in their face, Jesus himself, and said, You just committed the unforgivable sin, and they didn't care. And they continued. If you have committed the unforgivable sin, you don't care whether you have or not. Those who commit it are unrepentant. They're hardened against it. But if you are concerned about committing the unforgivable sin, you can be sure you have not. If it has bothered you, if it has worried you, whether you have committed it or could commit it, you can be sure you have not. Fourth, it is possible to go to hell without committing the unforgivable sin. You may live your whole life without committing the unforgivable sin, but if you persist in unbelief at the judgment, you will go to the same place as though though you had committed it. The Bible emphatically says, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Don't comfort yourself to think you're a Christian just because you haven't committed the unforgivable sin. You can avoid the unforgivable sin and not go to heaven and not be a Christian. 
Fifth and finally, it is possible for any sin and blasphemy to be forgiven those who repent and believe in Jesus. Let me give you the words of a man who believed himself to be the worst sinner ever. A man who admits he spoke blasphemies against God and against Jesus. He said, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. And yet for this reason I found mercy, in order that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Of course, his name is the Apostle Paul. He was guilty of great sins, but he was forgiven. As John Newton, author of Amazing Grace, said at the end of his life, I'm an old man now, I don't remember very much, but I remember this, that I'm a great sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior. Your sins are the sins of people, and they may be great, but his grace is the grace of God. His mercy and forgiveness are greater than your sins. And all that Paul did is not what brought his forgiveness. He was forgiven while in the very pursuit of his sins. But regardless of what you've done or how many times you've done it, if you will come to Christ, he'll forgive you and receive you. And you come to Jesus, you will never commit the unforgivable sin. Jesus himself promised, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. No one who ever came to Jesus, whoever wanted Jesus, was turned away. No one. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these young people, and I pray that you'd give them a, a, a great sense of the work of your Spirit in their life. And I, I don't know them. I know that most would not be here without some profession of faith, certainly Christian upraising. And, but I pray that those who are yours would have a great sense of assurance tonight. And I pray that any who, who are not would have Jesus made irresistibly beautiful to them. May they run to Christ. All this I ask in his name and for your glory. Amen.